Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. What about 2 Nephi 25-23 in the Book of Mormon? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We are wrapping up our look at a book written by Tad R. Callister titled The Infinite Atonement. As we've been mentioning, this is a very popular book, even though it was written back in the year 2000. And again, we want to emphasize that much of what Callister teaches is very traditional Mormonism. And when you look very carefully at what he has to say, I don't really see the evangelical doctrine of grace shining through. Today, we're going to be starting on page 309 of his book under the heading Mercy and Grace, Gifts from God. And I'll tell you something, Eric. When I read this paragraph, I I have to admit, I got a little bit irritated at the horrible way he uses some verses, especially verses from the Bible. Again, it's a typical example of the Mormons twisting what the Bible tells us and making it somehow read as they want it to read, but not for what it actually says. He cites, for instance, 2 Nephi 10.24 on page 309. It is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. Now, take that by itself, and let's say it was not a verse from the Book of Mormon. Let's say that was a verse from the Bible. If I were to use that in talking with a Latter-day Saint. What do you think the response would be, Eric, if I cited 2 Nephi 10.4, it is only in and through the grace of God that you are saved? You'll be moved right over into the book of James, second chapter, where it says faith without works is dead. Almost guaranteed you would be taken to that. Faith without works is dead. And certainly we wouldn't disagree with that because a living faith is going to have works. But here's what bothers me. In that same paragraph, it goes on to say this. Paul taught the same. According to, and then in brackets, it says God's mercy, he saved us. Titus 3.5. Boy, that's not all that Titus 3.5 has to say. No, in fact, Paul makes it very clear in Titus 3.5 that it's not by any righteous work. It's not by works of righteousness we are saved, but according to his mercy. But that's not how Callister's going to read into this. He's going to try and make a case that you need both grace and works in order to be truly saved. Again, we need to state, We certainly believe that we are justified by our faith in what Jesus did for us. And as a result, we have works. That's what James is talking about. But that's not the way Callister seems to be understanding it. So what he does is he gives the analogy of a lifeguard. On page 310, it says, Sometimes we have a tendency to shy away from the word grace and instead to emphasize works, while certain others take the opposite approach. But in truth, these two concepts go hand in hand. When the lifeguard stretches out a pole to the drowning swimmer, the swimmer must reach out and hold on if he desires to be rescued. 
Both the lifeguard and the swimmer must fully participate if the swimmer's life is to be saved. What he's explaining here, folks, is what we call a synergistic understanding of salvation. And that's not really what we see in the New Testament. Now, whenever I hear this lifeguard analogy, it reminds me of an event that happened in my life many years ago when we were over at my cousin's house swimming in the pool when someone all of a sudden asked where my cousin was. I could see in the water that she was on the bottom of the pool. I had to swim over there, swim down, go get her and lift her up and then give her to my mother and my aunt who happened to be waiting at the edge of the pool. So she was unconscious. She had no ability to do anything but lay in the bottom of the pool. You had to dive in and you were the one that brought her back. Now, doesn't that seem to more fit the analogy of us being dead in trespasses and sin? Dead people don't move. And though I thank God that my cousin survived that very scary incident, she did absolutely nothing as far as participation in her rescue. This is where I have a problem with Callister's analogy, because there's always something that the Mormon has to do, because what God has done is never enough. But then he goes on to cite the story by Stephen E. Robinson, who was a BYU professor. He wrote a book called Believing Christ, where he gives this bicycle analogy. What does Callister say on page 310 regarding that story? Stephen E. Robinson tells of his little daughter who anxiously pled for a bicycle. He promised her that if she saved all her pennies, she could one day have one. Motivated by her father's promise, she anxiously engaged in chores around the house, carefully saving every penny she earned. One day she returned to him with a jar full of pennies, anxious to now buy her bicycle. Good to his word, Brother Robinson took his elated daughter to the store where she soon found the perfect bike. Then came the moment of truth. The price tag was more than $100. Despondent, she counted her 61 pennies. She quickly realized that at this rate, she would never have enough to buy her dream. Then Brother Robinson lovingly came to the rescue. I'll tell you what, dear. Let's try a different arrangement. You give me everything you've got, the whole 61 cents, and a hug and a kiss, and this bike is yours. The bicycle was certainly not totally earned by the young girl, but nonetheless, it was gladly given by a father who recognized she had given her all. Now, there are some aspects that I think need to be inserted into the story. He does mention that she was engaged in chores around the house. Now, the fact that she's doing chores in order to earn this money tells us something. Definitely, she is doing works. Are, is she doing the chores because she has a love for her mother or her love for her father and just wants to keep a clean house because that pleases them? No, she's doing the chores because she wants money that is going to, in turn, buy her something that she desires. This is why we have a problem with the concept of doing works in order to be saved. It shows that there has to be a selfish motive involved. That's why his young daughter was doing the chores. She wanted the money in order to get something, and in this case, the bicycle. Here's what it says in Robinson's book on page 32. He said, she gave her father a big hug and a kiss and handed over the 61 cents. Then I had to drive home very slowly because she wouldn't get off the bike. She rode it home on the sidewalk. It was only a few blocks, and I drove along beside her. As I drove, it occurred to me that this was a parable for the atonement of Christ. 
Now, I would argue, no, it's not. It's not a parable of the atonement of Christ at all. It may be a parable that has been perverted by Mormon doctrine, but what it seems to leave out is the fact, kind of like the drowning swimmer, we are dead in sin. We're not capable of doing anything. We need to be forgiven, and that forgiveness has to be accomplished by something outside of ourselves. So she earns the 61 cents. And of course, in this analogy, it's not nearly enough to buy a $100 bike. But the fact is, it's still 61 cents that she had to earn. She had to put forth some kind of effort towards the purchase of this bicycle, which in this case is in similarity to salvation. The fact is, folks, because we are dead in our sins, you could say because of our sins, we're in debt. We don't even have 61 cents. So there's a a huge fault in this analogy. And there's the synergism that you were talking about earlier, that there's a cooperation, according to Mormonism, that you have to participate in if you hope to be able to get the very best this religion has to offer. And then on page 311, right after the story of the bicycle that Robinson had told, this is what Callister writes. This is the spirit in which Nephi counseled, quote, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do, end quote, 2 Nephi 25:23. In other words, we contribute to our salvation, but we do not earn it. Well, wait a minute, Eric. Let me stop you there, because had I only had page 309 to go by, where he cites 2 Nephi 10:24, where it says, it is only in and through the grace of God that you are saved, And then he cites Titus 3.5, but only the portion that reads, according to God's mercy, he saved us. It sounds to me like there would not be works involved if it was indeed a true understanding of what grace is, because grace has to be an unmerited favor. Now, a Mormon might argue, well, yeah, but what we're actually contributing is just a small amount, like the 61 cents that Stephen Robinson's daughter had towards a $100 bike. But you seem to miss the point. We can't even come up with that. That's why it has to be an unmerited favor. That's what grace has always been known to be. To use the word mercy to describe this kind of salvation is also faulty, because mercy also must be undeserved. If you can contribute anything in order to receive mercy from a sovereign or some other individual, then it seems to undermine what the word is implying to begin with. So you see, Callister, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, They are taking words that have been perfectly understood in their proper context throughout the history of Christianity and giving them new meanings that the New Testament never gives these words. We're at the end of the series, Bill, and if anybody would like to see an article that goes along with the series, you can go to mrm.org slash the infinite atonement, and there are hyphens between the infinite atonement. Bill, what would you say is the take-home message what we're trying to get across to Latter-day Saints who might have this book, who may have read this book, who might think that what they're reading here regarding the atonement is very similar to what biblical Christianity is teaching. I think if you read the book carefully, that it's not a comparison at all, or at least not a close comparison to what we as evangelical Christians believe regarding the atonement. Jesus didn't do enough, and we have to do the rest. Now, as he 
in this last chapter that we've been looking at so far. He might take some of these verses and by not quoting them in their entirety, try to give the reader an impression that it sounds like, yes, we do believe in grace, but listen carefully. He'll go on and he'll expose his real intentions later on as he does in this chapter. For instance, quoting those verses out of 2 Nephi, but then he goes on to cite 2 Nephi 25-23, which certainly is not giving the impression that you're saved merely by God's grace. In fact, he says on page 311, thus works alone cannot save us. Grace is an absolute prerequisite. Okay, well, if you interpret grace as being an enabling power, which I'm sure Callister does because he does cite the LDS dictionary earlier on, but then he goes on to say, but a certain amount of works, that is the best we have to offer, are necessary to trigger God's grace and mercy. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, It's not by works, lest any man should boast. If you think that you brought anything to the table, then you misunderstand what grace is all about. And I think Callister misunderstands, because after you just cited Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he does the same on page 311. But what does he conclude? Thus works alone cannot save us. Grace is an absolute prerequisite, but a certain amount of works are necessary to trigger. That's not what it says. True, in verse 10, Paul does go on to say we are saved unto good works, but again, that falls right into our explanation of what justifies and what sanctifies, and that's exactly what Paul was trying to get across. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.